Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to this week's episode of Murder and Mimosas. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. This week we'll talk, be talking about part two of our three-part series about the West Memphis Three. And Danica, do you want to give us a recap about last week? Absolutely. So we really just set the scene last week about who our victims were, how they were found, and the start of the police investigation into who killed those three boys. Uh, just a reminder, it was Stevie, Michael, and Chris. And before we get back into the story today, we're going to talk a little bit about satanic panic that was happening at the time to understand the mind frame of people at the time. So I was alive in this period of time and it was all over the news media. There were talk shows always um, giving information about satanic occults and coming after you. Um, There was backmasking and the music so uh, supposedly that Satan was talking to you in the music and it seemed very real and in everybody's forefront of their mind at the time. And I just going to say, of course, they didn't have, you know, internet at the time. There wasn't a way to look it up and, and dispute this. So it was just kind of what the media said is what was truth. That is true. So if you remember last week, LG Hollingsworth had pointed the finger at Damien Eccles, but had nothing to substantiate his accusation. However, he wasn't the only person putting the blame on Damien. Jerry Driver, a juvenile officer, also had Damien in his sights about a year before the murders. There was a lady that called and reported Damien for threatening her daughter, whom was Damien's ex-girlfriend, Deanna Holocombe. Deanna's mother told the police she was fearful for her daughter's life. Within a month, Deanna's mom called the police again, saying her daughter and Damien were seeing each other again. The officer warned Damien to stay away from Deanna. Six nights later, Deanna's mother called the police again. She advised the police that her daughter had run away and that she assumed she was with Damien. The police began to search for her and found she and Damien. They were found at Lakeshore Estates, which was the trailer park that Damien lived in. They were in an abandoned trailer, both nude from the waist down. They were both taken to the county jail and charged with burglary. 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 (laughs) But nothing was stolen, so I'm not sure where they got charged with that part. And sexual misconduct. A juvenile officer went to Ethel's home and asked to search Damien's room, which his mother allowed. Driver left with notebooks, which included Damien's writings. Driver put this in Damien's juvenile record as so-called evidence that showed his interest in the occult. Driver continued to keep tabs on Damien, even when he moved to Oregon for a brief time. Driver would write letters to officials there. One was that Damien was trying to contact the girl he was arrested with, which was in violation of the terms of probation, although there was never any evidence to support this. 
So as the investigation moved forward, Vicki Hutchinson was called back into the police department for another interview. Okay, so Vicki Hutchinson is Erin Hutchinson's mother, which we talked about Erin in the last episode. She was called in because of something completely unrelated to the murders. You remember the blue tr- uh, beacon truck wash that we talked about? She worked there, and she was getting called in because the owners had noticed a $200 overrun on a customer's credit card and suspected that she had stolen the money. So that's what she was coming in to be interviewed for. So when she comes in, um, she mentions to the police when they ask why she brought an eight-year-old with her to a an investigation or an interview. She was telling the police that her son, eight years old, was still upset about his friends being murdered. Um, so they think that this $200 credit card fraud is really nothing to be worried about since she could maybe help them in their investigation. So Vicki Hutchinson decides she'll play detective. So she started by speaking with her neighbor, Jesse Miss Kelly, about Damien, since they were close in age and rumors around town already pointed toward Damien. Jesse said he knew of Damien, but they weren't really friends. He just knew that Damien was weird. However, she goes to the West Memphis police with her own concocted story of events. She claimed that Jesse told her that he had a friend named Damien who, you know, drank blood and stuff. The people, I'm sorry, the police have Jesse come in for an interview. This interview lasted 12 hours. But Danica, can you guess how much of it was recorded? I would hope for 12 hours that either all or most of it would be recorded. Well, you would be wrong. It would be a whopping 45 minutes of the 12 hours. Those 45 minutes contained a confession from Jesse, if you want to call it that. So let's take a second and talk about Jesse in his interview with the police. For starters, Jesse's 17 years old, so he's a minor. He had no parents present during these 12 hours, and he also has an IQ of 72. And just for those who aren't sure, because we weren't sure, a normal IQ is anywhere from 85 to 114. For Jesse's IQ, he was um, considered having a borderline mental disorder. On top of all this, the police performed some techniques that, in our opinion, were unethical. Besides questioning him for 12 hours, they told Jesse that he flat out failed his polygraph test. For someone with his mental abilities, he was just in shock and scared. Um, He didn't think the police could lie to him. And they also showed him crime scene photos of one of the boys, which would be hard for anyone to have to see. But to really push him over the edge, they played a recording of a little boy's voice saying, nobody knows what happened but me. Um, For the record, that little boy's voice was the voice of Aaron Hutchinson, and they had convinced him, the police had convinced him to make this recording so they could use it. So at this point, Jesse begins to spin a story of what happened that night with constant discrepancies and changes as the police feed him information. And we're going to listen to a short clip of Jesse's actual confession. Towards the houses. Towards the houses. Where the pipe is that goes across the water. Yeah. Okay. He ran up there. And I, and I called him and brought him back. And then I took off. Okay. Well, you came back a little bit later, and all three boys are tied. 
Is that right? Yeah, I took off and went home. All right. Have they got their clothes on when you saw them, Tad? They had moss. They had already got This story that was told implicated not only Jesse, but also Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. So Jason Baldwin is a 16-year-old boy who lives in the same trailer park as Damien. They're besties, which was all it took for Jason to be implicated in this horrible scenario. The night that Jesse gave his so-called confession, the West Memphis police raided Damien Eccles' trailer and arrested both Damien and Jason. So I'm sure you're wondering what evidence they have against any of these three boys besides Jesse's word. Nothing. They have absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well, with their monumental mountain of evidence, they take Jesse to trial first. At first, Jesse's lawyer assumed he was guilty because who in their right mind would admit to doing something this awful if they have not participated? The attorney quickly realized that Jesse wasn't guilty of anything except for not being, well, that bright. But to give you an example of what we mean by this, we're just going to read a little bit, an an excerpt from the book, The Devil's Not. So go ahead, Danica. So it's actually two excerpts. Um, One is on page 108, and it is his lawyer, um, Dan Stidham, recalling a conversation they had that really for him made him realize that his client was just not Not all there, I guess is the best way to say it. I went back to the jail. Again, this is his lawyer's point of view. You've got a level with me. Were you there or were you not? And he said he was not. And I said, why would you have told me all this time that you were there? He said, well, because I didn't want to die in that electric chair. I explained to him that Greg Crow, the other defense attorney, and I were on his side. And that's when I began to realize that he didn't understand what a lawyer was. He had no idea what a defense attorney was. He didn't understand the concept. To him, a lawyer was just a person that was part of the justice system. He thought we were detectives. He didn't understand that we were on his team. That's when I began to see Jesse Miscalli in a different light. At that time, he had a weird haircut and tattoos. He looked like an ordinary, everyday street thug. The kid was handicapped. Bill Clinton had just become elected president of the United States, and everybody in the state of Arkansas knew who Bill Clinton was. Miss Kelly did not. So that's sad, but we're going to read one that I'm not going to lie. It's a little funny, y'all, but (laughs) it just goes to show like how just low his mental abilities were. If Stidham had any lingering doubts about his revised review of his client during a visit with Jesse, he'd asked him who Satin was. So that was Jesse asking his attorney who Satin was. His attorney didn't understand. Jesse handed him a pamphlet a preacher had given him that was all about Satan, his attorney would recall, but Jesse could barely read it, and what he could read he thought was about somebody named Satin. At that point, Stidham got it. Jesse was referring to Satan, but never having read the unfamiliar name before, he was mispronouncing it Satin like the fabric. His lawyer was dumbfounded. As they discussed the pamphlet, pamphlet, his attorney realized that the boy had heard of the devil, but never that he was called Satan. His quote here says, it was one of the most ironic moments of the entire ordeal, a lawyer later said. There I was, sitting in jail with a confessed satanic killer, 
And he was asking me who Satin was. Oh, my gosh. But that was the only way we could really give you a insight to what his mental state is. So going into the trial, the only evidence against Jesse was his own contradictory words, despite his alibi witnesses at his attorney's attempt to have an expert witness on false confessions testify. Which was shot down by Judge Burnett. Because this would actually be reasonable doubt, probably, to the jury. So we don't want to have that. So anyway, Jesse ends up convicted of first-degree murder of Michael Moore and second-degree murder of Stevie Branch and Chris Byers. The, sentences, the sentence handed down to him was life for Michael and 20 years each for Stevie and Chris. So then we have the police that are questioning Damien and Jason on several occasions. None of the interviews were recorded. I know that's a shocker for you, right, Annika? Yeah, well, we have 12 <laughs> hours and only 45 minutes recorded. We don't really need to record anything else after that. So Damien was asked to submit blood and hair, and hair samples, which he freely gave them. He was asked to take a polygraph test, which he also agreed to. To our surprise, there's not a recording of this as well, and there is no evidence of the machine's electronic responses. Another shocker. <laughs> what was in the police report was a one-page report written by Durham that Damien had been untruthful. So. Well, I, just well. That's all I've got. <laughs> I know. So next up is Damien and Jason's trial as they were tried together because that would be more, you know, monetarily efficient. The evidence in their trial was fibers that were microscopically similar to clothing items found in their homes. Right, found in their homes, not their items. I know the red one was tied to Jason, supposedly, and they called it microscopically similar to a red robe that was in the home, which I'm sure was probably not Jason's. And you have to remember also this was 93, and the forensic testing was not what it is today. So we also have witnesses claiming they heard Damien confess to the crimes. We have a serrated knife. Okay, let's talk about the serrated knife for a second because I know you're like, oh, well, they have a knife. They have the murder weapon. That was never linked to be the murder weapon. It was also brought up by Jason's mother that she had taken the knife from Jason and thrown it into their pond back behind the trailer, which is where it was found. She threw it back there a year prior to these murders. They brought in scuba divers to go out and find it, which also, the odd part about that to me was that it was not done by the police. The prosecuting attorney, Fogelman, was the one that arranged this. And though it was supposed to be hush-hush and nobody was supposed to know about it, the media happened to just mm -hmm. show up to this hush-hush, you know, moment. But they sent the scuba divers out who found this knife. So I guess that their theory is that after Jason's mom threw the knife out there a year prior, these boys waded into the water, got the knife, used it for a murder, and threw it back into the same lake. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to get a murder weapon, I'm not going to go dig it out of the lake and then chunk it back in there. But that's just me. <laughs> I could be lazy. I don't know. So they also have an occult expert, and let me tell you a little bit about him. So for starters, the so-called occult expert, Dr. Griffiths, 
who has his PhD in psychology of cult, the defense was able to get Griffiths to finally reveal that he took zero classes to get his mail order PhD. Yes, I said zero classes. So what they, he just called up and been like, hey, can you just mail me a PhD? I'd like to be a doctor. Well, he read a lot of books. He told the, um, the defense. He read a lot of books and he was mailed a degree, a PhD in a cult. Okay. So you and I may be able to be PhDs back in 93. I don't think it works like that now. <laughs> so we also have a jailhouse confession. Okay. Let's talk about that one too, because this one came up five months after the supposed confession happened. Supposedly, Jason Baldwin, while in jail, met a boy, 16-year-old boy named Michael Carson. And after two days of knowing him, just spilled his guts. And Michael got on the stand when he realized that he was in some more legal trouble is when he decided to let them know about his confession from Jason. In his confession, he said that Jason told him that he had, that Jason had cut off the penis of one of the boys and drank the blood and put the scrotum in his mouth. Not only do I not think that's true, but I'm also thinking, um, even if it was, I don't think after knowing someone for two days while maintaining my innocence this entire time, that I'm just going to be like, hey, want to know something cool? I mean, like, not that that's cool, but you know what I'm saying, that you're just going to spill your guts to a stranger. And I'm sorry, I'm just not a fan of jailhouse confessions on the stand anyway. I mean, most of them are there, I think, to take a field trip to get out of jail for a little bit. But that's just my opinion. Or to help themselves. Because normally, like in this case, I'm sure um, he was given leniency because he helped them. That is true. So they also have Damien's writings in his journal. What they don't have is Jesse's so-called confession because Jesse did not want to perjure himself. So they couldn't make him confess. So with this evidence, the jury deliberated and came back with a conviction for both of capital murder for all three boys. Damien was sentenced to death by lethal injection and Jason was sentenced to life without parole. I just have a hard time and I understand that it was 93, but even then with the little bit of evidence they have and they didn't even have the confession at this point for their trial because Jesse wouldn't. Since Jesse would refuse to testify on the stand, they could not use the confession in their trial. What they have is so little. It just surprises me that they came back as convicted. So I don't know. It just blows my mind still. I would say a little bit of it was probably Damien's personality. Um, he did seem very nonchalant about things, but I, you know, he was a teenager and. I know he was thinking, this is nothing. I didn't do it. They can't they can't nail me for something I didn't do. But um, I don't think that helped. And with the satanic panic, they were probably like, oh, the police have to know that what this happened or what happened. And, um, you know, the jury, I'm sure, used the expert as like 
just God sent word of what happened. I don't know. I'm sure some of you are like, how is this even tied to satanic panic? According to the occult expert, it was because there were three victims and three was a, uh, or well, 666 is a satanic number. And that has to do with threes, I guess, because there's three sixes. I really, it seems like a stretch to me. Also, it happened on a full moon. I thought that was like a werewolf thing, <laughs> but I guess it's say Satan too. I don't, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about satanic things. That was oh, they paint their nails black, they paint their hair black, and they wear black. He pulled Jason Baldwin in and to this by saying that he felt Jason was involved in the occult because Jason owned eleven black T-shirts. And I'm assuming Damien owned 13 since he got a harsher conviction. They didn't give us a number, but <laughs> I mean, to get life, I guess you have to own more than 11 or to get death row. It's just crazy. We are going to talk about next week a little bit more into what happens after they're convicted. The one thing I'm not sure we've mentioned so far is that during all of this, HBO is recording. That is a big deal, and we'll tell you why it's such a big deal next week. We hope you tune in. It will be the last of our three. We'll tell you where they're at now, if they're still in jail, if you're in prison on death row. If you already know where they are, then we'll give you a little bit past and what's currently happening with this case. If you would like to see pictures, we'll have pictures of their mug shots of Jason, Damien, and Jesse on our Instagram, as well as a picture of the judge who let nothing happen and a picture of our good old friend driver. <laughs> and you can see those on our Instagram. It is murder.mimosas. If you want to come talk to us on Twitter, we are there also at murder.mimosas. If you would like to send us an email with a case that you would like to see done, you can email us at murder.mimosas at gmail.com. If you have any questions or you want to look more into everything we've talked about, we will link um, everything in our show notes, all of our sources there. So if you have any questions, you just want to dig further, because even with three episodes, guys, there's no way we could cover everything that has to do with this case. Until then, have a mimosa, enjoy your weekend, and we will see you next week. Bye!